Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whitehead and my guest today is Professor Stephen Treziak, Chief of Medicine, Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, Camden, New Jersey. Stephen is co-author with Dr. Anthony Mazzarelli of the book Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. You can find him on Twitter, at Stephen Treziak, which is at S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-R-Z-E-C-I-A-K. Stephen, welcome. Chris, thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be here. So you're an eminent physician scientist at Cooper Medical School. What motivated you to start working in the field of compassion? So... I actually wasn't in the market, so to speak, for any sort of an awakening. In fact, my research program was hitting every milestone for success, quote unquote. And I'm an intensivist, so a specialist in intensive care medicine. And for 20 years or so, I was studying resuscitation science in the ICU, intensive care unit. And uh, the work was meaningful, but then an unexpected question from a 12-year-old turned everything upside down and literally made me rethink and ultimately change the trajectory of my life's work. And that 12-year-old was my son. And one evening, he asked me for help. He said, Dad, I have to give a talk for my class at school. I know you give a lot of talks. Can you help me prepare mine? And I thought, this is going to be so awesome, a father-son bonding opportunity. And little did I know what was in store for me. And so I said, what's your talk about? And he reached into his backpack and he pulled out a sheet of paper and put it on my desk. And on this sheet of paper was the assignment for his talk at school. And the assignment was this. What is the most pressing problem of our time? He was 12. Uh, I don't know what you were doing when you were 12. I was not doing what is the most pressing problem of our time by any stretch of the imagination. What it did is it, it triggered for me a period of introspection. And of course, the work that I was involved with was meaningful, but it, it wasn't the most pressing problem of our time. And of course, there is no single most pressing problem of our time. It's all what is the most pressing problem through your lens of experience, whether it was my son's as a young person or mine as a physician researcher. So I had to find what, what did I believe was the most pressing problem of our time through my lens of experience as a physician researcher. And what I became aware of very acutely, and although it was all around me for many, many years, and I hadn't noticed it before, or at least not in the same way, is that in healthcare, we're in the midst of a compassion crisis. Yes. There is ample evidence for a compassion crisis in healthcare. And in the U.S., for example, uh, research published in Health Affairs from investigators at Harvard University found that almost 50% of Americans believe not only, not only that our healthcare system is not compassionate, but also that our healthcare providers are not compassionate. Mm -hmm. Rigorous research from a number of different academic health 
uh, centers have found that physicians specifically miss 60 to 90% of opportunities to respond to patients with compassion. And in the context of an office visit, research shows that physicians only spend about 1% of the time in the context of an office visit expressing compassion for patients. These uh, data are not just from the U.S. Uh, There's data from the U.K., from Ireland, uh, from other countries uh, as well. And data from the Mayo Clinic, for example, shows that the median time the median time to first interruption of a patient when they're trying to explain their primary reason for going to the doctor is just 11 seconds. And when you combine that with the data on the burnout epidemic in healthcare providers, which is definitely not just a U.S. phenomenon, there's data from all over Europe and the U.K. uh, specifically, we have um, a high proportion, more than a third actually, of healthcare providers that suffer specifically from depersonalization, which is defined as an inability to make a personal connection. And now in the era of electronic health records, there's evidence that healthcare providers actually spend more time looking into their computer screens than looking their patients in the eyes. And based on all of these data and more, I conclude we are in the midst of a compassion crisis indeed. But the big question, in my opinion, the big question is this. So what? Does it matter? Does compassion really matter? Now, you may say, of course, compassion matters. It's a cornerstone of the art of medicine. And of course, I agree. But is compassion just in the art of medicine? Or are there also evidence-based effects belonging in the science of medicine? Mm. And what is the evidence? So that's what my colleague Anthony Mazzarelli and I set out to do. As research nerds, research nerds love hypotheses. And our hypothesis was that compassion matters for patients, for patient care, and for those who care for patients. So essentially, our hypothesis was that compassion for patients is meaningful but also it matters in ways that are measurable. And that was perhaps the, the uniqueness of the work that we set out to do, a two-year journey through the biomedical evidence where we reviewed more than 1,000 scientific abstracts. Uh, there are more than 280 original science research papers cited in Compassionomics. And so what we share in the book isn't our opinion, It's not what we think or what we believe, but rather it's what we found in our journey through the evidence in synthesizing actually decades of research uh, and curated it in such a way to put it all together so that the signal is really unmistakable in, in the sense that we curated the evidence that compassion matters in measurable ways and not just for patients and for the quality of care that we provide to patients, but also it matters for the giver too. So not just the receiver, but also the giver. In your TEDx talk, you described the outcome of your research as no less than a scientific awakening for you. Would you like to say more about that? 
I've always valued compassion. And if you asked me years ago, do I consider myself to be a compassionate physician? I would have said yes. When you see all of the evidence um, for compassion and the benefit, not just for the patients, but for the giver too, it opens your eyes in such a way that it makes you want to utilize, to, to use your compassion every opportunity that you have. And importantly, and, and this is specifically important for me because your listeners might think that because I curated all the evidence and wrote a book about compassion, I must be the most compassionate doctor. But the truth is I am just a work in progress. Now, thankfully, science shows that change is possible. And I didn't used to believe that. So I used to believe that people were either wired for compassion or they're not. And people will tell you that that's what they believe. They will tell you, oh, I'm not a touchy-feely person or, or something like that. Um, and certainly there may be people who are more predisposed to human connection, to meaningful human connection than others. But when you go through the scientific evidence that's available, and this is both in healthcare and outside of healthcare, in, in um, general populations as well, the research is quite clear that compassionate behaviors, compassionate behaviors can in fact be learned. They can be taught and learned. And the operative word is behavior because we're not talking about what you believe in your mind, but rather how you interact with other people and how you treat other people. And the evidence is uh, quite compelling. My, my colleagues and I, we published a paper in a journal called Plus One uh, just last year, synthesizing all the evidence for this topic in compassion and empathy training for physicians or physicians in training. And what we found is that of the 54 studies that have been published in the biomedical literature, more than three quarters of those studies showed that compassion training by whatever methodology that they use moved the needle, so to speak, on compassionate behaviors in a way that was detectable and measurable and distinctly different and statistically different from those who did not, who were not trained in that way. And in this context, we found that compassion can actually be taught and learned. And this is such good news indeed for people like me who are a work in progress. Now, a key element of this is that you have to want to, and you, you not only have to want to, you have to believe that you can in fact get better. So what I mean by that is this, researchers from Stanford University Carol Dweck and Jamil Zaki and colleagues, they've studied something called growth mindset. And if you have a background in education, you might be familiar with this. It's the idea that performance, such as intelligence, for example, these are skills. They're not traits. And if you believe something is a skill, not a trait, the learner is more apt to work hard at trying to get better at it. If you believe it's a trait then when you have failure, you'll, you will internalize that 
and you will feel like a failure and it will make one not want to try. In contrast, if you have a growth mindset and you believe it's a skill and failure is just a stepping stone and you just need to get better, those people will push through and they will put in the work and they will in fact get better. What is lesser known about Dr. Dweck's work in education is the work that she and Dr. Zaki did in studying empathy. So empathy is a bit different from compassion. Empathy is the feeling, understanding, detecting, sensing, and then resonating with and, uh, and understanding another person's emotions or pain or suffering, where compassion goes beyond that. Compassion is defined as the emotional response to another's pain or suffering involving the authentic desire to help. And so compassion goes beyond empathy in that empathy plus action equals compassion. So compassion is, is acting upon those opportunities that you detect with empathy. So what doctors Dweck and Zaki found is that in um, studying empathy, that empathy can grow if you believe it's like a muscle that you can develop if you have a growth mindset. So if you believe it's a skill rather than a trait, you're more likely to work at it. You're more likely to get better at it. And then you will, in fact, get better. In contrast, people who have a fixed mindset rather than a growth mindset, they believe that empathy is just a trait. You're either born with it or you're not. It's in your the fabric of who you are, in your DNA, or you don't have it. Then you're less likely to try to work at it in any meaningful way, and then change is not ever going to happen. Yes, I think we're all a work in progress, Stephen, that's for sure. When I uh, present on Compassionate Leadership, I often quote from your work, and I know Michael West, my guest on episode 13, also makes regular reference to Compassionomics. Would you like to give listeners two or three specific examples of the difference compassion makes in healthcare? Sure. So um, compassion can make a difference for patients in four distinct domains. So in our work in Compassionomics, we found actually that there were 24 different mechanisms of action by which compassion can have a meaningful benefit for patients. And we grouped them into four different categories of mechanism of action. So for example, effects on quality of care or effects on patient self-care, how you influence how patients take care of themselves and all the time that they're not in front of the healthcare providers or physiological effects or psychological effects. So let's start with the practical. If you have compassion for patients, you may be more likely to be meticulous about the care you provide and less prone to making major medical errors. And this has been shown in medical doctors, in surgeons. And what has been found is the primary driver of this association between compassion or a lack of compassion and lower quality of care or more medical errors is that um, healthcare providers who have less compassion for others are also more likely to cut corners in the care that they're providing. In other words, be more sloppy, less meticulous. And so that's not necessarily cause and effect, of course, and those are associations, but a causal pathway can be cutting corners in, uh, in, in the quality of care that's provided. 
An another example. So again, sticking with the practical. Patient self-care. Research shows that if you care deeply about patients and they feel that, they're more likely to take their medicine. So one of the things that we struggle with in healthcare is this concept of adherence. Adherence meaning you take your medicine versus non-adherence. So researchers from Johns Hopkins University in the U.S. did a, a study of 1,700 patients with HIV. Now, HIV is a very serious condition without question, but in 2020, it's also very controllable. The key to control is always taking your medicine, adherence without fail. So these investigators from Johns Hopkins wanted to find out what are the influencers of adherence to therapy? And specifically, they tested one thing. They asked the patients the question, does your HIV provider know you as a person? Know you as a person? Yes or no? And then they adjusted the analysis for every measurable factor that could be associated or that they already knew to be associated with adherence versus non-adherence. And after adjusting the analysis for all those factors, what they found is that knowing the patient as a person was associated with a 33% higher odds of adherence to antiretroviral therapy. But here's the kicker. It was also associated with a 20% higher odds of having no detectable HIV virus in the blood. So that is association from which we're not supposed to infer causation, but you can, mm. you can think of the causal pathway. So compassion for patients, the patient feels that you know me as a person, that gives me self-efficacy, which is the concept that the patient believing that their disease can in fact be controlled versus not controlled. And then actually taking their medicine versus not taking their medicine. And that clearly is associated with clearance of virus from the blood. Very powerful example, in my opinion. But there are also physiological effects. So, for example, compassion for patients can modulate stress-mediated disease. Compassion for patients can modulate patients' perception of pain. There are immune system effects and neuroendocrine effects. Now, there are over 100 papers cited in Compassionomics that pertain to effects on patients. And of course, I can't go through all of those examples today. I, I gave you a few. Some others are in the domain of psychological effects. And it might be intuitive to some extent that compassion for others can modulate psychological distress of others. And while there's some intuitiveness to this, there's also clinical evidence for that. So numerous uh, rigorous investigations from universities uh, in the U.S., for example, University of Pennsylvania and Duke University and the University of Colorado, funded by research, uh, research support uh, from the NIH, have found that compassion by a therapist in treating people with depression, compassion is associated with a moderate to large effect on the reduction in depression symptoms. And similar effects are found amongst people who suffer from anxiety, as well as the psychological distress of going through a serious somatic illness, for example, cancer. Going forward, you describe your quest as to make healthcare more compassionate through science. 
what are the practical steps you're taking in that direction at present? Um, I guess I'm thinking specifically of your practice at Cooper Medical School. So I'll speak to that from a research standpoint, but also a clinical standpoint in my own practice. So I'm a research nerd by background, so I like to test hypotheses. And what we've done in Compassionomics and synthesizing all the evidence, but also carrying that forward to our own original science research program that we're developing here at Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, is a robust research program that is grounded in the belief that we need to determine the quantitative effects rather than the qualitative effects. Because compassion is sometimes put not at the forefront of priorities for healthcare. It's not until you can quantify the impact for patients, for patient care, and for those who care for patients that the magnitude of the effect is really fully understood. And on moral or ethical grounds, I've never heard anyone say that we uh, shouldn't treat all patients with compassion. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who believes that. Um, I don't know um, anyone who would admit to it if they did believe it. But on moral or ethical grounds, of course, we should treat all patients with compassion. There's an ought there. But is it just an ought or is there an evidence base? And if there's an evidence base, how strong is the evidence base? And what we found in Compassionomics is that compassion for patients belongs in the domain of evidence-based medicine. There's as much evidence behind treating people with compassion as for any pill you took today or any surgery that you have planned in the future. The evidence is that robust, and we should then treat compassion accordingly. In, in medical school training, for example, I think that the technical aspects of patient care, of treating patients, have always been put on the forefront, and aspects of bedside manner, compassion, and you could put in other terms there, have been looked at as the um, dessert, right, after you've finished the entree. You know, if you have time and you're not too full, then then it would be nice to have a little bit of compassion. And what we've what we've done in our work and in our ongoing work and our research program is to be rigorous about the science. Uh, and we're, we're as rigorous about this hypothesis as we've been about any other hypotheses in a research program in the past. So be rigorous about testing the hypothesis and then testing it in a quantitative way, because we believe that there wouldn't be a compassion crisis in healthcare if we really understood the magnitude of the effect. We wouldn't look at it the way people often look at compassion right now is a nice to have. It's, it's mm-hmm. nice to have compassion as long as you're technically proficient. And by the way, uh, I would want to make sure that your readers don't buy into the false choice that is sometimes suggested. Uh, so, for example, when Compassionomics was first published, there was an article about it in the Washington Post in the U.S. And the tagline in the social media, this was the hook to link to the article on Twitter, read like this. Would you rather have a physician who graduated at the top of the class in medical school or a physician who's compassionate, as if it's an 
either mm. or, right? So don't, that is a false choice. And don't, don't buy into that line of thinking because it's not an either or, it's an and. And everything that we write in Compassionomics, we're very explicit about that. If you are a physician who prescribes the wrong medication or a surgeon who has a major technical error, you botch a surgery, there's no amount of compassion that's going to undo that. But it's not an either or, it's an and. It's compassion and clinical excellence yield the best outcomes. I was going to say my favorite example from uh, your books actually uh, relates to the primary healthcare system in the UK, where you quote a paper that found that where patients have an unmet expectation for a connection with their GP, then they're 47% more likely to be referred to a specialist. So you can see that as we've cut GP consultation times in the UK, all we've done is shuffled that patient further into the acute medical system. And uh, I, I would say that, you know, that's had a massive direct cost on the on the UK healthcare system. In your book, you quote the American Medical Association, which estimates the cost to the US economy of the staff turnover associated with physician burnout as $12 billion annually. Now, your own output is prolific. Do you have a self-care regime? Are you avoiding burnout yourself? So... This is where the science meets the personal. And it's also one of the reasons why the work in Compassionomics is personal to me, even though it's filled with data and 280 original science research papers. So as an intensivist, a specialist in intensive care medicine, what I do routinely and sometimes every day is meet people and their families on the worst day of their life, literally. And after about almost 20 years of doing that, I came to the stark realization that I had every symptom of burnout myself. And so what was I supposed to do? Well, yeah, if you were if you were a social worker, you would be receiving therapy every month. Sure. And and what I did first, because I'm a research nerd, is I went to the literature and I looked it up. And so it, the literature and the history of treating burnout in physicians specifically has been what I call escapism. And I'm not belittling any of these things, but the things that what I call escapism, these things that were recommended were things like go on more vacation, take more nature hikes, do more yoga, detach pull back. And I thought about it. And if you buy into that, then you're also buying into the line of thinking that if I just get away from my patients as much as I possibly can, everything will be fine. And I wasn't buying that. I mean, that just didn't make sense to me because all of those things are good. And by the way, a healthy work-life balance is a necessity. There's no doubt about that. I'm not I'm not saying that work-life balance isn't important because of course it is. 
But I wasn't believing that just escaping from clinical care at the bedside was the antidote to burnout. I thought that something had to change fundamentally at the point of care with the patient. Like the nature of what I was doing and how I was experiencing it, that had to change. So I believe that that something had to change in how I care for people. And that was about the time when I became aware of the data that compassion can be a powerful therapy for the giver too. Now, I didn't necessarily understand that years ago. So in the early 1990s, when I, when I was in medical school, I distinctly remember being taught, don't care too much because too much caring, too much compassion burns, will burn you out. And when I speak about this in medical uh, meetings of medical organizations, I see physicians about my age all nodding their head because they were taught the same thing. The problem is that when you go into the scientific literature and you look it up, you really can't find data to support that hypothesis. In fact, what the preponderance of evidence shows is that there is, in fact, an association between compassion and burnout, but it's inverse, inverse. So if what I was taught in medical school is true, then you would see a positive association, meaning high compassion, high burnout, low compassion, low burnout. What you see when you look at the evidence, and we synthesized it all in, in a chapter in Compassionomics, when you look at that evidence, you see an inverse association. So high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. And sometimes people want to jump to inferring causation to say, oh, yes, I understand these data. Burnout crushes compassion. But when you look at the totality of the evidence that's available in the biomedical literature, in the psychological literature, what you actually see is a signal that is a bit different in that compassion for others can actually be protective. Uh, compassion can be protective against burnout. And it makes sense to me because, well, first of all, there are neuroscience uh, underpinnings behind this. So when you experience empathy, when you have empathy for someone, meaning you bear witness to pain and suffering, it's uncomfortable. It hurts. There's neuroscience data behind that. The neuroscience data using a technique called functional MRI that shows you what part of the brain is being activated at any given moment in time shows you that when you bear witness to pain and suffering through empathy, you actually have activation of the pain center, pain centers of your brain. The, the statement, I feel your pain, well, there's, there's neuroscience data to actually support that. You do feel that pain. However, when you take action with compassion to alleviate someone's pain or suffering to, in whatever way is possible, it actually activates distinct neural structures, areas of the brain that neuroscientists would consider to be reward pathways. And it's, it's associated with positive affect, positive emotion, a feeling of bonding and affiliation. It's a feel-good experience. And that's why some say empathy hurts, but compassion heals. And so 
the reason why compassion can be protective is not only because it feels good, but also because if you have compassion for patients and you build that relationship with your patient, then you get the fulfilling part about caring for patients. That's what it means to take care of patients. It's, it's that fulfillment of caring for others. And if you don't build a connection with patients uh, and you don't have that compassion for patients, then you don't get that fulfilling part. All you have is a really stressful job. And so that's why I found the evidence very compelling that compassion could be beneficial for the, for the giver too. And so being a research nerd, I decided to test the compassion hypothesis for myself. So I did what I call my N of one experiment, where I was the one, the only subject in the experiment. And so I decided very intentionally, because you can't make this decision in a casual way, I decided that I'm going to care more, not less connect more rather than pulling back, lean in rather than detach. And that was when the fog of burnout began to lift for me. It changed everything. And so I found that burnout was alleviated through compassion, not in escape. And actually, it's our colleagues around us that have the lowest compassion for others and the the weakest connections with others that are the most high risk for burnout under the same amount of stress because the preponderance of evidence in the scientific literature show that relationships are the key to resilience and resistance to burnout. That can be relationships with patients, relationships with colleagues, all relationships build up our personal reserves and our resilience and resistance to burnout and give us that fulfillment. And so relationships are key. So talking of colleagues, how has your research been received by colleagues at Cooper and uh, practitioners in the wider U.S. medical system and beyond? Well, one disclaimer I could have given you at the beginning is that I'm just a doctor Whereas the true experts in compassion, if I'm being honest, is the nurses. And, and by the way, I mean that uh, so sincerely. I, I, I tell my student physicians all the time that I learned how to treat patients from textbooks and journal articles and in classes in medical school. I learned how to take care of patients because of the nurses. And some of our nurses or many of my colleagues who are nurses have just one word uh, to sum up our entire book, Compassionomics. And that word would be, duh, like, of, of course. What could you possibly have been thinking otherwise? And yeah, I get it, right? So there's an intuitiveness that people, because for example, Compassion has been a cornerstone of the, the profession of nursing as long as there has been nursing, right? And, you know, perhaps, you know, they get 
intuitively what it takes research nerds like me, you know, two years and a thousand scientific abstracts to figure out. So that's been some of the feedback um, that I've, I've received. And um, the nurses had it figured out a long time ago. Us research nerds, it took us a little while longer. So we're coming into land now, Stephen. Is there a person or persons that has inspired you along your journey? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My wife, yeah, she's the most compassionate person I've ever known. So um, I, I, I learn things from her every day. Lovely answer. Stephen, it's not often that a book that is billed as revolutionary lives up to the epithet. But in your case, you've delivered something that I believe all healthcare practitioners would find truly thought-provoking. Thank you for appearing on the show today and for sharing your wisdom with us. And thanks for listening to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book on Amazon. And this episode was recorded by Squadcast in Sheffield and Camden, New Jersey. And the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Radio.